Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Doing live in-person events is off the table for a while, so in the meantime, here's our podcast series, The New Normal in California. During the shutdown, we'll be looking at ways our coronavirus-affected lives are changing over the short and long term, and talking with Californians who are making significant change in this new normal. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep producing more of these, consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In this episode, we're taking a look at California's food supply chain, how it's under stress and even breaking because of the coronavirus crisis. With national headlines about meat processing plants being shut down, crops being left to rot in the fields, gallons of milk being poured down the drain at dairy farms, and hundreds of people lining up daily at local food banks, we're wondering how this will play out on the shelves and at the check stands of our grocery stores. So we're talking with a couple of people who are literally in the field and seeing up close how pandemic-induced glitches in the food supply chain are playing out. First up is Evan Wigg, Communications Director for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers. Right now, they're helping California's small farms get through the pandemic by getting them to pivot from selling to restaurants to working directly with food banks, school districts, and other major food hubs. Wig and his team also have plans for helping farms stay in business and adjust to the new normal. In the second half, we're talking with Dave Daly, the chair of California Cattle Council, a fifth-generation cattle rancher in Oroville, and a just-retired professor of animal sciences at Chico State. He'll tell us about how California, the nation's fifth biggest supplier of beef and dairy cows, is doing, what we need to know about the meatpacking shutdown, and why he supports President Trump ordering them to stay open, and how this will play out in the butcher shop in the supermarket. Join us for our conversations with Evan and Dave about where the breakdowns in California's food supply chain are happening and how they can be resolved. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode five of our podcast series, The New Normal in California. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of California Groundbreakers. Today, we're going to talk about California's food supply chain, where it's breaking down, what the federal government, the state government, and the private sector are doing to address that during this COVID-19 pandemic, and how you can help out as well. So we all know about the toilet paper shortages, and now there's talk of an oncoming uncom- meat shortage, which we will talk about in the second half of this podcast. But now I personally am worried about, is there going to be a shortage of fruits, of vegetables, of dairy products? Uh, this came from reading a story earlier this month in the Fresno Bee, a really good story, but a really sad story about how farmers in the San Joaquin Valley were leaving crops to rot in their fields. Dairy farmers were forced to dump thousands of gallons of milk down the drain, yet at the same time and in the same area where these farms are, food banks are turning away the growing number of families coming to them for food because there just isn't enough food to give them. So why can't those crops and that milk go to the food bank? Why can't we just go to the farms and buy directly from them? It's not so easy as that. As we will find out, the supply chain in California and nationwide and worldwide is very specific. 
and thus it's very complicated. So in this episode, I'm talking with a couple of people who are literally in the field and seeing close up the full impact of how the pandemic and the state shutdown is affecting farmers, cattle ranchers, food banks, grocery stores, and the people who rely on all of them. So our first guest is Evan Wig. He is the Director of Membership and Communications for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers. We're going to call them CAF for short. And they're based down the road from us here in Sacramento. They're in, headquartered in Davis. And CAF's mission is to build sustainable food and farming systems through policy advocacy and on-the-ground programs that create more resilient family farms, communities, and ecosystems. And Evan has spent time on the ground in places ranging from community gardens in Brooklyn to cattle ranches in California. And he funded the Farmers Guild, which merged with CAF in 2017. And right now, he's directly involved in every element of CAF's response to the COVID-19 pandemic response, from legislation to direct market support for farms. So he's going to help us make sense of the the food supply chain, how it works, and what can be done to fix it going forward. So thank you, Evan. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking time out of your busy day. Thanks so much for having me on. So the first question I have is, give us a 360 view of the ag industry, farms right now in California, and how hard the pandemic has been for them. What is literally happening in the fields right now? Um, well, we're seeing a variety of impacts, and it, it's really not the same for, for any one farmer. Um, farms have uh, the crops that are coming on in different times throughout the season, so depending on when they're harvesting, um, has a different impact based on what's going on right now, um, as well as their market channels. So um, we're also seeing a really big just lopsided impact. On, on one side, you have farmers who are selling direct, who have CSAs, um, and, and direct market channels that are actually doing better than they ever have in, in the entire history of their farms. Um, farms that were struggling to get CSA memberships at the beginning of March, by the end of March, were uh, stacking up hundreds of people on their waiting lists. Meanwhile, you have other farmers who are literally plowing under their fields because they don't have uh, a sales outlets or the resources to get that harvested, shipped, packed, uh, and on to the, into the grocery store because you've got restaurants that have shut down, distributors, wholesales that have been uh, markets that have been disrupted. Um, anyone who's selling into cafeterias, just you know, just try to imagine the the massive amount of food that was going from farms to school cafeterias suddenly in a matter of days uh, suddenly shuts down. So it's uh, it's been a huge impact, and I think one of the important things to think about in terms of agriculture as being so unique is agriculture is all about timing. And if you're in construction and you're in the middle of building uh, a, a house and suddenly you have to halt construction, sure, it might, get, it might be expensive, it might be frustrating, um, but you can eventually come back and, and finish the job. Agriculture doesn't work like that. You, you literally have sh- short windows of time to get in and do what you need to do. You've, you've planned out your entire season far in advance and every seed that you put in the ground, you, most farmers have a really clear idea of where that's going to end up um, as, as the end product, whether that's a, a contract with uh, a purchaser or, or just a general crop plan based on market expectations. And so to suddenly have the entire food system disrupted so dramatically and so quickly uh, it really makes it tough for farmers to pivot in the way that some other businesses have. You certainly can't 
telecommute to your farm um, and you can't delay. Uh, and in, especially when you're talking about living things, crops in the field or uh, animals out in the field. So that's, uh, that's one of the things we're, we're really struggling with right now is um, that pivot in their business and sales strategies so they don't have to start uh, laying off the employees um, or even worse, having to shut down the farm altogether. And I, I think if you can give us a visual, you know, talking about this pivot and talking about uh, um, when you're farming for a particular market, I, I got a sense of, again, with the toilet paper shortage, you know, we have our individual rules that we use in our bathrooms at home. And I noticed, you know, in the office where I work, it's humongous rolls of toilet paper. It's a, it's a different size. It's a different fit. And I'm assuming it, it works a, a similar way in, in uh, agriculture. Like if you're growing crops or uh, a certain thing for a McDonald's or a school district, it's not so easy to shape and, and reform that in whatever way to sell it to a grocery store or at a farmer's market? No, every single sales outlet is different. They require different regulations, certifications, um, paperwork that's involved, the tracking, the shipping, the distribution, the, the standards on uh, how things are supposed to arrive. Um, you know, the, the, the contracts that are made in agriculture take months, if not years, to, to really develop. And so to, to, to simply switch that out, and, and even in the case of toilet paper, you can at least, at least toilet paper wasn't going to waste, right? Um, at least with some products, whether that be toilet paper or wine, you know, you, you put a cork in a bottle of wine and you're able to hold on to it until the market is better. Um, whereas if you're harvesting spinach off the field um, or your chickens are laying eggs, that's, uh, that's got to move immediately. These are perishable products. So um, to try to reconfigure everything so, so quickly, um, it, it's a really big challenge. And um, what we have seen is, is, you know, some farmers switching business models altogether. Um, I was speaking recently with a, with a duck farmer who sold almost exclusively to restaurants in the Bay Area. And, you know, chefs love duck. It's a, it's a really amazing uh, uh, dish, but the average home cook doesn't really cook duck, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's, um, most people at home are, are intimidated by something like a duck. And so here's this small family farm specializing in, in duck that has to somehow pivot immediately and start selling direct to consumers. So they've built up a website, an e-commerce site. They've done a whole social media campaign trying to get individuals to purchase duck directly from them. And, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, but they're actually doing a, a fairly good job given the circumstances, but people's ability uh, to, to cook that product is, is a challenge. Um, and the other big challenge in, in, going direct, in going direct is, whereas previously they had a few dozen clients who are ordering, you know, bulk, suddenly they're sending one or two pounds of duck in the mail to people all over the place. So you're suddenly dealing with hundreds and hundreds of customers putting in 10 times as much work for half the revenue. So it, it's, it's definitely not as, as easy um, as it sounds. And 
you know, then there's also farmers who, who have grown their entire businesses. This is usually larger scale farms that have actually grown for contracts. So that's what you know, you're seeing right now is you're seeing the, the headlines for Tyson and, and uh, uh, Smithfield, some of these much, much bigger uh, sort of uh, corporate entities. You know, the way that those contracts work is uh, the, the suppliers, the farmers that are contracted with them, they've basically built their entire infrastructure. Every single thing that they're doing on that farm is in compliance with the contract that they have with that processor with the with that bigger company from the 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 feeds the feedstock they're using to the genetics of the chickens to the the distribution channels i mean every, every single thing is designed according to the, the standards of tyson or smithfield or some of these larger companies for this streamlined vertically integrated system and so to suddenly have that switch and turn off you know these these chicken farmers, and say for instance, the South can't can't simply go to the farmers' market with what they have. They've they've built their entire businesses around a single client. Now, is that a, a resilient business model? Probably not. And we're seeing that as the case, and we've seen that over and over again. Um, but again, to to try to suddenly build up your own direct market strategy to go to the farmer's market to, to build up a, a presence online where people are seeking you out and ordering direct from you. That's a, that's, that's not an easy task. And so in terms of help and assistance, uh, recently the federal government and here in California, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom have offered help aid packages. And I was wondering if you could just give us a quick overview of what help is being offered to farmers, whatever size they are, uh, both at a federal level and state level, and will it be enough? So there's been a whole range of, of stimulus and support out there. Um, the, the question is who has access to it? And that seems to be the question um, of, of the month. We, we have the payroll protection program, um, just like for any other business. Um, but even then, we saw some discrepancies in who was getting access to those resources, as well as the um, Small Business Association's um, economic injury grants. Um, but while you have the Lakers and Shake Shack and, and all these big companies cashing in on these resources that are meant for, for small businesses, um, imagine, imagine ramping up in the season on the farm. Um, it's now May 1st, which is that's, that's deep into the growing season. This is an incredibly busy time for farmers. Uh, now imagine a, a small family farm trying to get at the front of a line at their local bank. Um, you know, it, the, the way these funds are being administered, they're going through private banks and private banks are going to prioritize their best customers. So um, unfortunately, uh, the, the small farm is not first on the list for Chase or Bank of America. So We've seen a number of farmers being denied um, or not getting in quick enough. Um, and in the first round of those economic injury grants, farmers weren't even eligible. It wasn't until this last round that farmers were actually uh, eligible. Meanwhile, the USDA uh, announced about a week and a half ago um, a, a stimulus package specifically for agriculture. Now, we at CAF, uh, we, we lobby both in Sacramento and uh, in DC through the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition as of this moment, we're, we're digging through the, 
the, the language of that bill um, to, to find out what's actually going to be available. Again, our organization primarily deals with your, your family farms, the small to mid-sized farms, um, the, the folks who, who don't have lobbyists, paid lobbyists in Sacramento, the folks who, um, who aren't first on the list for those uh, banking clients, right? Um, and we're, we're asking the USDA, well, we're asking farmers to contact the USDA right now and say, um, are these funds going to be eligible for me or are they going to go to commodity crop, larger scale growers? Um, we've seen time and time again, federal funds made available to agriculture that ends up going to the largest farms where the smaller farms, the more diversified farms, the farms that are sell selling into local and regional markets get bypassed. Um, and maybe that's, a, maybe that's because it's easier to work with uh, a handful of, of big farms as opposed to a whole myriad of small farms. Um, but we're, we are concerned whether or not that money is actually gonna reach the farmers who really need it, the farmers from disadvantaged communities, uh, immigrant farmers, uh, small-scale farmers and, and farmers who are, have diversified products. A lot of these uh, systems are set up so that um, you're, you're meant to put in how many, how many you know, acres of, of corn and how many acres of soy or whatever it is. But we, know we work with a lot of farms that are growing 50 different crops throughout the course of a year on just 10 acres. And those kinds of operations don't fit into the, the, the simplified logic models of, of an application. So that's a challenge we're seeing uh, at the state level. Um, Governor Newsom just announced a few different programs. There's a, a program right now, that the Farm to Family program, that when farms donate to food banks, they provide support and funding to actually do some of the harvesting, the, the, the harvesting, the packing, and the shipping. So um, again, the, it, it's one thing for a farm to, to, to donate their product, but one thing that I think your, your listeners should really keep in mind is that um, growing the food is just one part of, of agriculture. The most, the most expensive part and, and the most challenging part is actually getting people out there to harvest it and pack it and ship it. I mean, that's, that's, those are a lot of huge, huge expenses. So just because there's, there's, there's crops in the field doesn't mean that it's, it's free for, for, from, from field to wherever it needs to end up. So um, what we're doing here at the state level is um, seeing some support, some financial support, so we can actually pay um, the, the farm workers to actually do the harvesting and the transportation, the packing. Um, and so it's not that the burden doesn't fall 100% on the farmer who's already struggling. If they're having to donate food that's about to go to waste, probably means they've, uh, they took a real big economic hit. So um, sharing the burden of keeping people fed, not just with the small handful of farmers, but with um, everyone in California. Uh, another great program we're working on right now with, uh, with the Newsom's office is um, a, a program that would put food industry workers back to work, uh, preparing food to senior citizens who are in need. Yes, we did that actually in the previous episode. We talked to Patrick Mulvaney, um, the chef in Sacramento who started the Sacramento version and was talking about how he, Gavin, came to see him in the kitchen and took that idea to, to do statewide. That's terrific. And one element of that program is um, prioritizing locally grown foods. So right now we're, we're just pushing for 
um, local governments um, to, to make sure that as we're putting these people back to work, that they're not just supporting local restaurants and food businesses, but that, that the sourcing is coming from the farmers who need those sales the most within their own local community. Um, so again, the economic resilience is, is making sure that we keep, we keep our dollars, including our emergency dollars locally as much as possible. You speaking of, of the programs and you mentioned food banks, um, I was wondering how, how easy it is to get food over there uh, because I was reading and also someone had mentioned this earlier, the public benefit system is not that well set up to purchase fruits and vegetables from farmers and sometimes farmers aren't set up for that. So will this program make that easier? Uh, are you working on making that easier? How, how should that change? Yeah, and, and there is, in fact, in the federal stimulus, um, one of the things we advocated for when that was uh, being written initially was to, to try to make those connections between um, getting fresh fruits and vegetables to families who, who really need it. And there is actually quite a large carve-out in the federal stimulus package that would provide funding for exactly that, boxes of fresh fruits and vegetables to families, um, bought directly from the farms uh, who need those sales. So that's in that, but again, like the devil's in the details, we're still waiting to see how it all rolls out. Um, the, the current administration didn't exactly have uh, everything clearly outlined when they released the, the stimulus package. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it unrolls in the next couple of weeks. Um, but there are definitely programs to, to promote that. And, um, and I think that Right now, we're, we're seeing a huge surge in CSAs, I think not just because it's a, a convenient way to avoid the grocery store, but I think there's a huge premium on health and, and trust. So um, supporting local farms is also supporting uh, getting through this health uh, crisis. Yeah, I, I saw that uh, CSAs were doing really, really well, uh, and you had mentioned um, that a lot of your farmers uh, work in that area and I'm, a lot of them are selling out. Uh, how, how do you make sure that will continue post-pandemic? Do you think this is the beginning, like the new normal will be more people just regularly supporting CSA? Or do you think that there's something that should be done to, you know, after this, we get the all clear for them to uh, keep on supporting? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, so there's a, I mean, this, this is definitely a heyday for the CSA. And, and for your listeners who might not know, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And what that is, is a pre-purchase where you buy in at the beginning of the year into a farm's harvest. And then every, usually it's every week, you get a box of whatever's coming off that field. So you, you're eating seasonally um, and you're sharing the bounty of the farm. You're also sharing the, the financial risk, or not the risk, but the, the financial investment. Because um, over the course of, of a year, Farmers is putting most of their expenses at the very beginning of the year while they're not actually selling until the end of the year. So it's a way for small, usually smaller farms um, to, to finance themselves throughout the year with a partnership with their community. Um, and it's been around for decades. Um, we at CAF have advocated for CSAs and, and helped CSA farmers across California since the 1980s. Um, but it's always remained this sort of niche sales outlet that was 
that really existed for those diehard local food aficionados, the folks who, who really wanted to support their local farms um, and, and wanted to eat seasonally. But what we've seen in the past month is, without a doubt, the, the single biggest spike in CSA membership, uh, I think, in the history of CSA. Um, more people are signing up. At, at the beginning of March, um, we were working with, with farmers across California who were, as, as per usual around this time of year, struggling to get enough members for the full year. By the end of that same month, most of these farms had waiting lists, some with hundreds of people on those waiting lists. So it, it's, it's like nothing we've ever seen. Um, and so what we're doing right now is, well, number one, we're trying to see if we can partner um, farms who, who've lost their sales outlets with CSAs who have a huge demand. So can we, can we beef up those CSA boxes with additional items? So let's say, can, you know, the, the duck farmer I was telling you about before, can we connect that duck farmer with CSAs where people can have an add-on? So as they're getting their CSA box, they can, they have this option to add on, you know, a duck and that, that provides some sales outlet while the demand is overwhelming over on the CSA farm and try to even that out a little bit. So that's what CAF has been working on over the past month is trying to be a matchmaker and trying to get some equilibrium back into our supply and demand because it, again, people are still eating foods, people are still purchasing food and people are still growing food. There's, there's been no disruption in, in the supply and the demand in a total sense. It's just where is that supply or where is that demand? That's, it's just where and how people are consuming and, and purchasing their food that's changed dramatically. So we're just trying to try to fill in those gaps and find out where, where the, the biggest demand is and, and where we can feed in those farmers who've lost their sales outlets. Um, so we've been working with farmers across the state to do that. And in some cases, they're actually switching to CSA models or order online, delivery pickup, um, and or even in some cases e-commerce, um, but again, it, it's a it's a it's, it's tough to ship lettuce greens, right? It, it's to a, to an, indiv an individual customer, though some people are doing it. Um, but the, the the question you asked is a good one: is is will this be sustained? And you know, to be to be quite honest, no, I I I would not bet that um, a year from now, if things finally get back to normal, we're going to see the same spike in, in CSAs. But, but I do think that this has been the most exposure that CSA has gotten um, in its history. And it's, it's a golden opportunity for folks who, who believe in this model and who rely on this model for maintaining local agriculture to, to really capitalize on this. And again, I don't mean to exploit a, a crisis situation. I mean, um, people are interested in their health right now. People are um, really wanting to know the source of their food. You go to a grocery store and the produce that you're purchasing there has passed through who knows how many hands uh, it, it, from some large anonymous global supply system. Whereas a CSA, you can guarantee it's only passed through one or two hands before it's reached your dinner table. So it's, it's a really great way to be involved in the local food movement um, and, and eat delicious seasonal produce. And if, you know, if we can use this opportunity and leverage it to educate more people about the value of CSA, then 
while I'm sure we're going to get lots of members dropping off as things start returning to normal, I do think that there will be more people aware of, of why this matters and, and we can, you know, see more, uh, more folks aware and, and jumping onto CSAs in, in the future. So I wanted to ask you also a couple questions about the matchmaking that you had uh, mentioned there a little, a little earlier uh, and how you're helping to matchmake. I think a couple things I read that CAF is focusing on is uh, the emergency food system and ha getting farmers to work more directly with food banks and school districts. So how you're helping to matchmake there uh, right now as, also, as well as, you know, going forward. And then again, those um, farmers who again, like the duck farmer, right, who majority of sales went to restaurants or schools, uh, how those markets that may never come back or, you know, it'll take a while, matchmaking them with markets that need the food now. Just briefly, like how, how are you helping as a matchmaker? Sure. So, you know, we, we have the, we have the advantage as an organization to be, you know, spread throughout the state um, and in constant communication with growers and, and buyers of, of all different types. So we're in regular conversation with food co-ops, with distributors, with food hubs, um, and, and a whole assortment of um, outlets for selling produce. And meanwhile, we're also in regular communication with, with farmers across California. So what we're able to do was uh, we, we simply put up a, a document, an online living document where if you were a farmer who either lost your sales outlet um, or were getting ready for a harvest in a week or a month come and you knew that you might not have a place to, to sell that your traditional outlets had, are, are still going to be shut down. Maybe your farmer's market is, has been shut down or the, the schools have closed. Um, you, you were able to put your, your crop, what, when you were going to have it, the specs on what that is, how much, um, and then we were also contacting all those buyers to put in what they had or what they were looking for. And then behind the scenes, um, our whole team was making connections, going through the document on a regular basis um, and, and trying to figure out where those, uh, where those gaps were and where we could make connections. Um, because there, there is a shortage of, of food supplies at some of these places um, simply because they're, they're not aware that, uh, that these growers exist. Um, when you're, operating a business, you, you've, you've kind of got your short list, right? You, you, you've got your, your apple farmer that you usually work with. You've got your carrot grower you usually work with. But if suddenly, as a grocery store, for instance, your, your sales are spiking, right? Because everyone who's eating at, at, at uh, restaurants is suddenly going to the grocery store. I mean, that's the one thing that just to try to wrap your head around the magnitude of this disruption it was only a couple years ago when we reached this, this milestone in the food system where the majority of food dollars were spent on food consumed outside the home than inside the home. And that's a huge, huge shift. So just think about more than 50% of food was consumed at the office, at the restaurant, at the bar or, or, or the cafeteria. And now suddenly that massive amount of food is, is being, you know, eaten at the home, which means that for every person who would go to the, the, the restaurant to get their lunch, they're now going to the grocery store or they're going to take out, but not nearly the same numbers. So if you're a, a grocery store, you're, 
you're running out of these products and you're, you're the uh, suppliers you had previously, there's no way they're going to be able to keep up with that demand. Um, Cause again, in agriculture, you can't, you know, you, you can't go back and be like, oh, actually we sh- let's, let's plant more carrots four months ago. Right. It's, it's everything is based on time. So you can try to predict, but farming is inherently a, a gambling business where you're, you're putting in, in, in some cases, it's, um, you know, months of anticipation of where you think the market's going to be. In other cases, you're putting in orchards, you're talking about years of anticipation. So uh, you, you really never know what's going to happen at the end of a season. Um, but in this case, I don't think anybody could have anticipated what just happened. So in terms of the, the, the future of farming, I guess, before this happened, there was a lot of concern about small farms and, you know, holding on. Uh, I think the average age of a farmer right now is a little older than you'd like it to be and getting younger farmers in uh, is a, is something that, that is being encouraged. Now with this disruption, um, what do you see the future of farming uh, being shaped uh, by what we're going through now for better and for worse? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll say that I anticipate that these online systems are going to be needed more than ever before. Right now, you see farmers markets scrambling to implement curbside pickup online pre-purchasing systems, whereas before it was just like, get the farmers out to the market and make sure the tents are up, right? Um, and you have these new people, new farmers getting into the CSA business, looking at a CSA software. Um, you have uh, folks exploring e-commerce. You, you have all these online systems for distribution and inventory that for the bigger growers, yeah, they'd already implemented that a long time ago. Blockchain analysis and all of that. It was like, like machine work. Um, but in this, in this case, um, it, it, it's harder to do that for, for smaller farms. Um, but they're, they're making that transition right now. They're going to have to make that transition. The smallest farmer's market, the, the, the CSA, um, and even that duck farmer, I anticipate they're going to have to leverage those online tools um, in the future, even after this pandemic is, is over. Um, so that's, that's one prediction for, for what things might look like going forward. I think people are going to um, be comfortable with purchasing online. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. I'm sure plenty of people are going to want to go back to the, to the farmer's market where they can mingle for three hours while they buy a few products. Right. But I, I do think that people are getting very familiar with, uh, with purchasing online. And so farmers are going to need to adapt. And the question you bring up about age is, is an important one because there's a digital divide. Um, we, we see a lot of these older farmers who are struggling with this technology and struggling to pivot. Um, we also see a digital divide amongst uh, farmers from disadvantaged communities. So farmers who don't have that education, those uh, marketing um, connections, um, it's, it's hard to, to make that switch. Um, and, and some of us have the education and, and the technical savvy to, to suddenly start a, a, an e-commerce site overnight. Um, but there's also communities out there, farm communities that don't even have rural broadband. Um, let alone the, the, the technical skills to, to set this up. So 
Um, we're going to need that kind of support if we're going to make sure that this transition is equitable and it's reaching farmers of all backgrounds. Um, and the question of, of the bigger question of whether or not we're going to have um, an opportunity to, for, for younger farmers to get in, um, you know, I, I think there is a place for a younger generation with more tech savvy skills, more creative, more, more creativity. Um, the only way that farmers are going to survive and the only way that, that, that farmers have ever survived is being crafty, um, being creative and doing more with less. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big question. Farmers are, are almost the average farm in California is almost uh, 60 years old and that number continues to rise every year. Um, how this is going to affect what we're looking at right now. I think worst case scenario is consolidation. Um, who's going to fill the void of all the restaurants that have gone out of business? Is it going to be other small businesses or is it going to be Amazon? Um, I, I'd like to think that we can maintain that diversity and, and local economy and, and entrepreneurialism that, that makes our, our local food system so wonderful. Um, but I think we're going to have to work really hard and we're going to have to have public investments um, and, and appreciation for what that really takes to, to make sure that, that the existing small businesses and small farms, um, as well as the next generation who, who's coming in to, to take that mantle, um, can succeed. That ties into my last question for you. Uh, supply chain, I never thought I would know so much about the supply chain or have to to research so much about the supply chain. Uh, but obviously, we are all being affected by uh, the impact of the supply chain. So in terms of, you know, the new normal, the supply chain, the question I have for you is, you know, how can we, now that we know this is a big deal, how can we as individuals um, help in terms of, you know, being consumers, more, more knowledgeable consumers or time, money, you know, where, where do you recommend we spend what we have and, and help? Um, I would, I would certainly say, um, you know, shopping local, um, the, the recovery from this and any disaster, whether it's a, a hurricane, a wildfire, or, or a pandemic, part of the, the recipe for an equitable and strong recovery is, is making sure that we have economic resilience at the local level. So I would encourage people right now, um, and, and when they start to open again, is to, to try to direct the, your financial resources to those local businesses who really need it right now. Um, I would encourage anybody who's getting that $1,200 check to maybe make a pledge and say, I'm going to spend every single one of those pennies on a local business that I know needs it the most right now. Uh, it's, it's not about charity, right? It's about getting wonderful services, wonderful food delivered to your door, um, being able to enjoy restaurants and, and get, maybe get a CSA box. Um, but that's, that's really, you know, if, if we all just take the $1,200 and, and, invested in Amazon, um, you know, that's, that's not going to trickle down back to our local economies. It's certainly not going to have any advantage to small farms. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the most important thing. And then um, also just recognize that the most important thing we have right now is, is relationships. I spoke with one farmer who sells at the same farmer's market every week, and she always does really great. She's one of the most popular vendors there. And when 
the pandemic hit, one of the things she, she said to me was that she regretted being anonymous, where people at the farmer's market, a lot of them knew her as the farmer who had that, you know, the stall at the, at the far north of the, of the market who had the really great carrots, right? As opposed to knowing who she was, knowing her name, being on a mailing list, following her on social media. She was just a farmer. So when, when the market shut down, no one could find her and she couldn't find her customers because they hadn't built that direct relationship. And so it just goes to show that having those strong relationships, um, whether it's using social media or, or being a part of your, your community immediately, um, is so incredibly valuable in order to, to, to be resilient and switch your business model. Um, because if they can't find you at the farmer's market, they don't know who you are, even if they want to come and get your carrots, even if there are hundreds or thousands of customers, you know, cursing themselves for, for not knowing who that farmer was and how to find them. Um, if you guys haven't exchanged information, if you haven't put a, a public face out there, um, then there, there's no way you can find one another. So diversifying your sales outlets, um, building community and, and making sure that farmers are not anonymous and that they have names attached to them and qualities and value adds. Uh, that's really what's going to allow us to, to get by and uh, not to put all our eggs in one basket. Uh, that's a great way to end it. Uh, thank you very much, Evan Wig, for taking the time to talk with us and uh, have a great weekend and uh, stay healthy and safe. Great. Thank you. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more New Normal in California podcasts literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab on the homepage of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Also, if you know of a Californian doing some innovative thing during this pandemic time who should be talking about it with us on this podcast, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org to give us information about who, where, and why so we can get in touch. We're always looking to get the word out about groundbreakers who people should know about and support. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the second half of today's The New Normal in California episode and a look at California's food supply chain during the coronavirus pandemic, where it's breaking down and what can be done to resolve it right now and for the long run. I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of California Groundbreakers. And I'm here with Caleb Clark, our audio engineer, who's in charge of editing this podcast so that we all sound great. So we've all been experiencing the toilet paper shortage, and now should we prepare for a meat shortage? I think we've all seen or starting to see national headlines of the meat packing plants in the Midwest shutting down. And naturally, there is one here in the Central Valley town of Hanford, where a few employees tested positive for the coronavirus. Then there was the full-page ad in the New York Times that the CEO of Tyson Foods, I believe, took out to prepare people for a shortage. And then there's articles about eggs and uh, pigs and calves that are being off because there's no room to send them. Is that the case? 
And then President Trump just yesterday or today, I believe, announced uh, he signed the Defense Production Act to keep the meat and poultry plants going. So will there be enough meat and eggs and milk for us in the grocery store? Will the prices be higher for these products? And can we find any of them at all? A lot of scary stuff, but to break this all down for us and tell us what's what, we have Dave Daly. He's the chairperson of the California Cattle Council. He is also, most importantly, a fifth-generation commercial cattle producer from Oroville, uh, up the road from Sacramento, where we are. And he's also, I just want to give him some accolades. I, I know he's a very modest guy, but to let you all know, he was immediate past president of the California Cattlemen's Association. He also recently served as the associate dean of the College of Agriculture at California State University, Chico. And he was also an animal science professor there at Chico State for the past 30 years. So he knows his cows. So welcome, Dave. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to first start off with if you can just give us an overview about the supply chain for raising a cow from birth to its end. What does that look like? Well, I, I, again, we, I promise not to give a lecture, but it's a fairly, <laughs> fairly uh, complex process. And, and to make that simple, I like to think of it in steps and how we move through the, the, the chain. And again, it, it involves multiple moves in lots of places. So I am what's called a cow-calf producer a range operator, my cows run out on grass, calves are born there, and I'll raise those animals till roughly a year of age, a seven to 800 pounds. They will be sold at that time to the next step in the chain, which would be a feeder. Uh, we call them cattle feeders. The cattle are moved into that, uh, into a feeding area for a fairly short period, about 100 days, and that's where they're fed pretty intensively. Um, to get that marble flavor that we all like and the tenderness that we expect, the flame and the yawns that we think are so awesome, they come from that feeding enterprise. So we get through that step, and then those animals are sold or moved to a packer. And the packer is the animal where the animal is processed, slaughtered, and turned into product. Well, now we've got part of the way, but they also need to then go into distribution. And then it's, it, we've got a wholesale product, got to move it to a retailer, and then eventually to the consumer. That's our oversimplification. Sometimes there's steps in between, but by and large, that calf I raise may be sold four or five times before you actually see that as a product at a restaurant or now, since you can't be at a restaurant, in a grocery store. So there's a lot of moves in the process. The challenge that we have in the current situation is I'm still raising cattle, right? That hasn't changed. The production is moving forward in a fairly stepwise logical process the challenge is that distribution, the processing and distribution is a bottleneck. I actually use an analogy. It's kind of like a, if you think of an old hourglass where you're watching time, all the little grains of sand are all us little ranchers up there in the, out in the country with a few cows here, a few cows there. And it kind of filters down to that bottleneck. And if it gets to the bottleneck, that's the processing retail. Then it filters back out to all the consumers in the country where they can buy their products. Well, our challenge is the bottleneck was always small, and now it's almost blocked. And that's where we're running into a challenge. So California's role in this is, I read that this state is the fifth largest uh, supplier of cattle. It raises, it's the fifth largest state in terms of raising uh, cattle. And I'm not sure how much meat packing plants are here. I know there was a one in Hanford that I mentioned, but it's, but for raising cattle here in California, where is the majority of that happening? 
again, it, we need to include the dairy sector as well. The dairy sector, that's right. The dairy sector as well, because although they're primarily for milk production, they do end up as beef um, in, in a process. So you, you know that the, we have a, the number one dairy state is California. And so we have a lot of dairy cattle in the state, but the beef cattle are spread from, how well do you know your geography? From, from Alturas up in Modoc County down to San Diego or to Imperial Valley with all different kinds of ecosystems. So it's a big wide swath of cattle that are raised in this state. But cattle are also pretty mobile. For example, I, uh, I have cattle here in, in California, but I'll be sending cattle to Oregon here in a month or so for summer grass. They may end up in Colorado to be fed and then sent back to California as cuts. So it's a, it's a really interesting business. We basically follow the feed. Where the feed is is where the cows go. So think of them moving on trucks from one spot to another to their final destination. So it's a fairly complicated distribution system that we're dealing with. So when you raise them and you have these numbers, I'm wondering, is there a point where you have too many of them? And I tie that into, again, the headlines about, um, I guess, especially with poultry and, and pork, uh, you know, uh, the, the farmers having to crush eggs um, uh, you know, get uh, get rid or euthanize, I guess, piglets sure. because there's so many of them and there's no place to take them. Is there a similar thing that happens or uh, could, there's concern that it may happen with cattle? I think that concern exists. Uh, cattle are a little more flexible than, than pigs and chicken because, um, again, we tend to run on grass and they tend to, we, we have a little more control over the timeline of when they move. But it is a real problem in those other species who are really tightly controlled in very tight windows. And so when a major packing plant shuts down or a processing facility, in the beef industry, it's problematic because the cattle that would have gone to the processed to be harvested, they just keep growing. So the pounds get more and it does back up the chain. So it has this, um, actually, a, it, it's a, a significant impact on the price structure the whole way through the system. The funny part, though, is not funny at all, actually, it's almost tragic, is that causes a real problem in live prices to me as a rancher, because there's so much concern of how do I process and where do those cattle go? When I go to sell those cattle, the buyers are pretty reluctant right now. So those of us in this business, we're going to have a tough year. Uh, it'll be interesting on the live prices we go. And yet, then you get to the retailer and you say, wait, the price is pretty high, right? Well, there's this limited bottleneck again that the animals are going through because the packing plants are shut. Some of these large ones are shut and then the animals, the, the product has to get to, so the retailers are saying, well, I'll pay more to get that out of the packing plant. So the price goes up to the consumer. So I won't, there is a lot of frustration in the industry of the disconnect between the live price, which I would receive or a fellow rancher would receive and the consumer price on the other hand, comes back to that, that hourglass and that really tight constriction is, is really creating a problem for us. Worse actually in poultry and pork, because they have a, I'll call it a shorter shelf life. They grow so fast and for a short period of time, it's hard to hold their weight. Cattle, you know, I typically would be selling some cattle right now. I'm waiting a month. I'm kind of, I keep them on grass a little longer, hoping the price will come back. I can only do that for so long, but it does give me some flexibility. And I know a lot of us Consumers are concerned will prices go up because of the bottleneck and maybe also the long-term fallout uh, of what will happen with cattle ranchers. 
I'm wondering if it's similar to farmers where we hear so much about, you know, it's already hard to make a living as a farmer for various reasons. And recently it seems like this pandemic is affecting them. Um, and there is a concern about what the, the map will look like agricultural wise after the pandemic's over, how many farms will be left standing. So for your industry, uh, cattle, dairy, and beef, what do you think the shake, will there be a shakeout um, post-pandemic and how will that trickle or flood down to us wanting to buy beef at the grocery store and milk? You know, there isn't a simple answer and I can't give you a crystal ball. It is a very, in my crystal ball, this is a difficult time and one of our great challenges to figure out the structure as we come out of this. But ranchers, cattle ranchers, dairymen are particularly resilient and stubborn and sustainable and they will figure this out. They want to stay in business. That's that's how we operate. Part of this uh, context is as I am, as I've got to the older generation, um, as I'm 62 now, um, we all think this is a worse, and it is a difficult time. But I, I do have enough history to remember my grandfather going through the depression and uh, basically no market for their cattle, land was foreclosed on. We thought no one would recover. We went through these tremendous challenges in the past and we survived. I, I can't, tell you that the structure won't be somewhat different, but I'm confident that we'll figure it out. We are nothing if not stubborn and tough and resilient. And we think it's really critical that what we do is important and we want to do it in a way that is sustainable and provides a product for the next generation. We do this, obviously, we have to have economic success and this is a scary time. We also do it because we love it. And so that's hard to change. Um, I, again, being honest, I am worried structurally what that looks like. I don't want to see people leave the business. I worry about consolidation. In other words, the small farmers say, or the small ranchers, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. And so we see larger and larger. And, you know, that's a natural trend in many areas, but it's one that we kind of resisted to keep a lot of producers in business. I hope we can in the future. I wanted to ask about the the Defense Production Act that I mentioned up top. That is something that is, and you can correct me here if I'm if I'm wrong, but I I feel like that has been used during wartime uh, to convert uh, standard uh, like automaking factories into creating well ventilators, for example. Uh, the uh, the president can use the Defense Production Act for that to happen. So creating you know necessary equipment and and making sure necessary. Um, uh, things that we need are are still produced. So he he did announce that he was going to use the Defense Production Act to keep the meatpacking plants, the ones that are you know getting to the the headlines, uh, to still uh, to still operate. And did he sign that today? Yesterday? I believe it was yesterday. Okay. It, it is. It has been signed. Correct. Oh, it has been signed. So I think a lot of people you know, again, it ties into essential workers on the front line, they're at risk, and a lot of people have tested positive uh, in the, in the, with coronavirus or even COVID-19, and they, um, 
that's concerned for the the plants. So I think there's this concern on on both sides about you know the bottleneck, uh, getting the food supply chain keeping it consistent, but on the other hand, protecting the workers who are there. So I know cattle ranchers are not in the meatpacking sure. plants, but you are connected in a way. What is your take? Is was the Defense Production Act necessary to sign? And you know. Who who benefits? Who suffers from that? In your view, I have spent a lot of time in in the packing plants, and so I'm pretty familiar with that process. And I, again, if people have not seen that, there is so much oversight. There's a USDA inspector there for sanitation and health. It is one of the cleanest facilities you will ever see, and it's critical that we maintain that. We can't have that change. Um, and I think it was important for him to sign that. I I think. Let's be clear, though, that doesn't mean that someone who has COVID-19 is going to go to work. Um, that means that there is an obligation at all times, if possible, keep those plants going. But I follow that fairly closely, and some of the large ones are still closing for deep cleaning or changing from one shift to two, excuse me, from two shifts to one shift. So there's time in between. So even though they're operating, they're operating at a much slower speed. Um, so the bottleneck still exists. Um, it doesn't say, okay, we're back to business as usual because we won't be back to business as usual. If you have been in them, although they are exceptionally clean, it's close working conditions. It's relatively close. If you can picture kind of a, a disassembly line, as the cut moves down the line and it's a rib, it may be cut into stakes. It's a highly skilled uh, technical skill, but people are in relatively close quarters. So I think these packing plants are doing everything they can to assure worker safety. Even though he signed the Defense Production Act and there's an expectation meets facilities will stay open, they are not going to operate at the same speed. We're still going to have a bottleneck. I don't, there is not a shortage of meat. I need to make that very clear. There's plenty of meat out there. And we want people not to panic buy, to buy reasonably. We just have to figure out the distribution and process to get it to the consumer. So speaking of the new normal in California, uh, when I was looking at the California Cattlemen's Association uh, website, yes. they were already talking about the new normals that uh, the industry was going to have to deal with that it's dealing with already. One of them is wildfire season. I think we yeah. all are, know that's going to be a year-round thing, and that is a new normal. So how... Um, how you're looking at that in terms of uh, uh, ranching and, and having cattle graze and dealing with wildfires. And another new normal is uh, the uh, clean meat, right? Or impossible burgers, beyond sure. meat. The, and that seems to be uh, the sales are increasing there. I'm wondering if that's impacting beef sales there. So those two normals, like where do you see uh, those two um, aspects affecting uh, the, the beef and dairy uh, cattle industry going forward. We're covering lots of ground here. <laughs> literally, literally. Actually, uh, uh, again, I think right now we're dealing with this pandemic, but you're right. I think we will move and move forward and stay positive about it. But right, we're going to enter wildfire season. It's, it's a major impact. One of the positives that I think consumers need to know and the general public needs to know, cattle are one of our best options to run wildfire. We need to let them graze right? They remove the vegetation. They do, they're kind of a natural recycler for us. So they, they use sunlight, they make protein, they reduce fuel loads, they protect against wildflower, wildfires, excuse me. I think it's pretty critical that we uh, 
keep those cattle in the in the ecosystem. I think that's important. And we will get through the wildfire season as well, but I do think it's important to recognize that all of us have a responsibility to manage those fuel loads and the ranchers want to be a partner in that. If you've got any extra grass in your backyard, let me know. We'll bring some cattle and we'll be do natural harvesting for everyone. Now on to the other one, clean meat. I'm not a big fan of the term, but we can use it. I use fake meat sometimes. Fake meat. Um, but I, I'm open to either. Um, honestly, I, I think I'm not someone, who, if consumers want to try something, go ahead. Try it. I'm pretty confident you're going to come back to the real thing. Um, I, I don't worry about that at all. And we've actually seen this in this pandemic. The, the step back to, I want to cook at home and make a, a meatloaf or a stew. As, uh, I, I stepped into several retail outlets when beef was disappearing. Surprisingly, there was plenty of the fake stuff still there. There was no, there was no real beef on the shelf. There was no real pork on the shelf. There was plenty of the other stuff. So I, I'm not too worried about our product. I think it stands the test of time. Um, a quick story is I wanted to do a test because there's no use complaining about something until you've tried it. So I stopped at a Burger King and picked up four Whoppers and four Impossible Burgers and took them over to a friend's place who happened to raise cattle and they were a little mad at me for, for buying them. And I said, let's just try them. Blind taste test. Um, we did. And the first bite you think, oh, I don't know, I'm a little worried. By the third bite you say, I'm glad I raised cattle. I'm not worried about it at all. I think it's important that we stand by our product. We're proud of our product. If people want to try something different, go for it. That's okay with me. They'll come back to the real thing. I'm pretty sure of that. So speaking of the real thing, we are recording this on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so a nice spring weekend is uh, ahead of us. And a lot of barbecue grills are already out there. So Dave, I wanted to get your advice. Like when you... Um, the best way to grill a steak, how you do it, and marinade even, if you have a good recipe for a marinade that you can give us. Wow, that's kind of funny. You probably asked the wrong guy because I barbecue, but I'm not, some people take this really serious, so I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I, my, my personal opinion though, I would prefer something like a rib steak if I had the choice. And honestly, you gotta be a little careful because there may be a little more fat to it. That's why it has a little more flavor, but it also, you're, so you're gonna have to watch temperature and fire and all those things. Cook it medium rare, salt and pepper is fine with me. Don't make it hard, it's a good product. And that's about as technical as I get. If you wanna really, I mean, people take this grilling stuff serious. My worry is that they're gonna go to the store to buy that rib steak and not have it. And I wanna make sure that, that it's there. I wanna make sure they buy it, buy a fake one with it and try it, and then you'll buy two of ours the next time. <laughs> Uh, well, since we're in California, I guess I should uh, I should ask you: Do you have any good wine pairings? What do you pair? What kind of red do you pair with a, a rib cut? You are way out of my pay grade. At this point. <laughs> I'll drink it if somebody pours it, but I'm not good enough to figure it out. A beer or a glass of wine? I can okay, do that. I can do a beer. Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dave, and um, and thanks for your insight. And I hope you do have a, a great weekend and a, a great barbecue set up and a, and kick back with a beer. Well, thanks. Remember that we'll cut through this. We'll be stronger on the other side. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This episode of The New Normal in California with Evan Wig and Dave Daly was recorded on May 1st, 2020. Thanks to Evan and Dave for taking the time to talk with us about their inspiring projects. Thanks also to Steve Mibviglio for his support. Special thanks to our donors, Barbara Park and Yvonne Richardson, who helped fund the production of this episode. 
Always thanks to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about how Californians are coping with the new normal. You can do that as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, our live events whenever it's safe to do them again, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.